Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Last summer, billionaires Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson competed to one-up each other's accomplishments in spaceflight, while Elon Musk's SpaceX continued to make history with its reusable launches. But are all these efforts nothing more than wasteful vanity projects by the uber-rich? I'm joined today by Robert Zubrin to talk about why the emergence of a private space economy and the prospects of colonizing the solar system should really excite us. Robert is president of Pioneer Astronautics and the founder and president of the Mars Society, an international organization dedicated to furthering the exploration and settlement of the Red Planet. An aerospace engineer and energy expert, he's the author of several books, including The Case for Mars and The Case for Space. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. We'll start with a simple one. Why should humanity try to become a multiplanetary space-faring species? Uh, in order to have a bigger future, in order to have an open future, in order um, to open the possibility to create new uh, branches of human civilization that will add their creative talents uh, to the human story. I believe some people view it as a vanity project, something almost like a, a, lug, a luxury good that we're, that we're gonna buy because some people think it's cool. They don't see the compelling case. Um, and I'm sure that was true in the 1960s and 70s. And I'm pretty sure it's, uh, it's true today. What aren't they seeing? Well, they're not seeing uh, the big picture. The game of life isn't played for money, it's played for children. Uh, you might ask, why should a couple have children? It's not gonna help them put food on the table, quite the opposite, uh, but it's going to help them uh, be part of the future. Um, and uh, the societies that uh, move out, settle space will be those that put their stamp on the future. And if we, uh, I mean, look, why are we speaking uh, English in this interview? Uh, neither your last name nor my last name is uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon, but because the British went forth and um, took their culture with its among the cultures of Europe of, of the you know 16th century, 17th century, it was the most individualistic. It was the most uh, had the most potential uh, for uh, opening the future. Uh, they expanded from uh, a rather small. A country of little significance into the dominant uh, global civilization, and you and I are part of it and have benefited from it. Um, you know, I, I only speak a little Russian. I don't know why uh, your name sounds Greek, uh, but here we are, and uh, you know, uh, contributing to a society that values individual liberty and dignity and democracy. And, and, you know, the literature of uh, Shakespeare and, and all the rest. Um, and, uh, you know, the Earth is just one planet. The human future is going to involve expansion to space. And do we want to be part of it? And furthermore, humanity will benefit tremendously from the new creative 
societies that are established in space, just as uh, global civilization has benefited tremendously from the creation of, uh, well, America actually, uh, not from the exports of America, as impressive as they may have been in various periods, whether it's been cotton or steel or wheat. Okay, but you know, for the past century, America has been 4% of the world population has been responsible for 50% of the inventions. And, you know, America didn't just give the world tobacco, we gave them steamboats and telegraphs and electric light bulbs and centrally generated electrical power and recorded sound and motion pictures and, and aeroplanes and nuclear power and computers and the internet. Um, we, we have revolutionized human existence. Well, Martian civilization is going to be forced to be as inventive as America has been because they're going to be a frontier society uh, confronted with challenges, but composed of technologically adept uh, people who are going to have to tackle those challenges and will undoubtedly create technological breakthroughs that will benefit all of humanity in the process. Does the fact that the United States has not in a manned mission been beyond low Earth orbit since the end of Apollo in a half a century, despite our love of our love of technology, our exploration heritage, our individualism, does that say something about our culture's willingness to support the kind of effort that you're talking about? Well, uh, I, I have some problems with some of the ways our American culture has been going in recent uh, years. But I don't really think this is a problem with the culture. I think this is a product of the degeneration of the political class. The people who got us to the moon in a decade in the 1960s were the same people or the younger brothers of the people that won us World War II. Okay, and, and they knew how to run a government that got things done, whether it was winning World War II or building the interstate highway system or creating atoms for peace or getting you to the moon. Uh, now, there's been... Uh, an extraordinary degeneration of the political class since that time. And this has shown itself in all sorts of uh, things that it has attempted to undertake. Uh, that is some of the things that we've done and you know, this defeat in Afghanistan was farcical. I mean, but precisely because the political class has dropped the ball, a new force has entered the arena, which is the entrepreneurial effort. You know, in the 1960s, no one would look or very few people would look for a private entrepreneur to save the space program because the space program was doing great. And in the 70s, we thought, well, maybe we just hit a, a, a bump in the road and it'll get started again because we could all remember when it really was going great. But as the 80s and the 90s went by and things just didn't restart, uh, eventually in the 90s, you started to see people starting entrepreneurial space companies to say, look, if someone's going to open space, it's not going to be the U.S. government. I'm going to try to do it. And by the early 2000s, one of those people or several of those people who were recruited to that vision uh, were people with the means to do it, um, such as Musk or Bezos, uh, others, uh, and um, and they're doing it. Uh, so. Uh, the government has uh, dropped the ball, but American culture and uh, the surrounding Western culture still retains plenty of people willing to do it. And uh, where the government has failed, I believe that uh, private entrepreneurs will succeed. Americans were excited about the space shuttle back then. And it seems to me they're actually pretty excited about the billionaire space race today. Do we underestimate just how interested people are 
about the prospects of going further and becoming a spacefaring civilization? Uh, look, uh, within NASA itself, you have a bifurcation between what I call purpose-driven programs and vendor-driven programs. Um, that is, uh, purpose-driven programs spend money to do things, vendor-driven programs do things in order to spend money. And while the human spaceflight program it was purpose-driven during Apollo, uh, the purpose wasn't scientific, it was to astonish the world with what free people could do, and we did. Um, the scientific programs were also purpose-driven during Apollo. After Apollo, since the manned space program hasn't had a purpose, it has degenerated into a vendor-driven program whose main source of support is the desire to distribute funds to various companies and districts. Um, the, however, the science program, while imperfect, has remained primarily a purpose-driven program. Okay, you know, we didn't build the web telescope to sell sunshades. Um, you know, there's a sunshade on web because it needs it. And whenever NASA does something that is purpose driven, the public response is immediate, whether it's the Mars rovers or repairing an upgrade Hubble or the web, you'll see it every time. Whenever it's actually doing something that matters, the response is tremendous. And then people looking at this, you know, rocket team at SpaceX introducing reusable launch vehicles, and they're going to change the picture. You know, the cost of space launch was astronomical at the time of Sputnik. It declined to about $10,000 a kilogram by the time of the moon landing, 6970. It stayed at $10,000 a kilogram till 2010, 40 years. The price of launch did not drop any further. Okay. It was like a law of nature, $10,000 a kilogram. Since 2010, as a result of the SpaceX introducing reusable rockets has fallen to $2,000 a kilogram, has fallen by a factor of five in a decade. And if they're successful with the Starship, which has both got a larger capacity and is a fully reusable launch vehicle, unlike the Falcons, which are just mostly reusable, uh, they'll bring the price down to uh, $400 a kilogram. And all sorts of business plans that people have that don't make sense at $10,000 a kilogram are going to make a lot of sense at $400 a kilogram. And you're going to see a massive expansion of space activity as a result of this. It sort of reminds me of sort of a lot of the business plans with the internet in the late 90s, where they just didn't have sort of the bandwidth to make those work. There are other companies that had ideas for, for Uber, but people didn't have smartphones yet. We didn't have the bandwidth. And all of a sudden when people had phones and the internet was much faster and could carry much more data, all those sort of initial business plans from the 90s, then they started to kind of make sense. And I guess maybe that's where we're, where we're at, that we had decades where people had ideas, but we just did not have the technology to make it. So now all of a sudden we have this huge drop in costs and we can do things we couldn't do before. What are some of those things going to be that we can do? Well, let's take one example, orbital research labs. You know, NASA identified this as a possible application of the space station and coupled with the space shuttle, people could do uh, research in zero gravity, taking advantage of zero gravity and hard vacuum that's available in space. Well, the cost and schedule and bureaucratic impediments involved in using the shuttle to put an experiment on the space station and the fact that you have to share the space station with other people. I mean, I run a research lab. I wouldn't want to have strangers running around my lab while I'm trying to do research of the, the, the business competitive nature. Um, well, guess what? 
when you cut the cost of launch, a Falcon 9, even now, okay, forget about Starship, that's coming, but even where we are now, Falcon 9 can send 20 tons to orbit for $65 million. 20 tons is the mass of a space station module. You could launch a space station for $65 million. And okay, maybe the space station itself costs another uh, $35 million. That's $100 million to create a orbital research lab. Now, that's uh, more change than I have, but that's well within the means of a Fortune 500 company. So we're going to start to see, you know, the Pfizer orbital space station and, you know, the, the, the Toshiba orbital space station and so forth. And as you can have orbital research labs sponsored by major corporations, it'll be within their means to do it. And uh, here's another thing, the space hotels. And that's a little further out, but it's, it'll come next. Because, you know, in the 90s, there was an entrepreneur named Bigelow who wanted to do space hotels. And uh, the business plan really didn't make sense in the 90s. There was no inexpensive way to launch it or to get people up and down. Okay. But if you, if Starship comes along, and now you're talking about launching 100 tons to orbit for $20 million, okay, and 100 passengers to orbit, 100 passengers into $20 million is what, $20,000 a person. Okay, so people who are well-heeled could afford $20,000 for a vacation in space. And also intercontinental travel for that kind of money. Once again, that's a little more than uh, I pay to fly air, but that's the cost of the first class ticket, uh, round trip ticket from Los Angeles to Sydney right now. And to be able to do that in an hour instead of 18 hours, so people would pay for that. Um, and reusable space launch vehicles means there will also be a secondary market in used space launch vehicles. So they'll be available even cheaper for people willing to pick up stuff that's been used a bit. Um, and so, you know, this is gonna be a tremendous expansion of, of what's possible in space. As this emerging space revolution continues to unfold and proceed, I mean, it's really tough to know what big advances will come from it. Much like it was tough to know what the internet would bring us. There's an inherent inability to predict. So I guess we just have to take a step forward into the unknown. Well, absolutely. John F. Kennedy at the beginning of the space age, you know, he said in, in one of the speeches, you know, uh, this is an act of space and vision for we do not know what benefits await us. Um, you know, but um, this is a new ocean and free men will sail it. This is a mountain and free men will climb it. And, and that's what this is. And I mean, who would have thought, you know, when they first found America or established the first colonies in America, uh, or even declared the independence of the American colonies that it would grow into something like what we have here today. Uh, and with all these in incredible creations and Yes, and uh, you know, there's some immediate possibilities that we can see. Um, you know, revolutions in research um, and even certain kinds of industrial products. Um, but you know, intercontinental transport. Um, the, the it's certainly going to determine uh, uh, the military predominance in the world is who has space assets and can replace space assets, uh, and who can't. Um, but the the, the but when you're talking about creating, giving birth to, to, to new branches of human civilization, it's like, you know, Benjamin Franklin, he once gave one of his demonstrations of electricity in front of an audience of French aristocrats. 
while he was over as ambassador to, to France during the revolution. And one of the aristocrats came up to Franklin at the end of one of his demonstrations were essentially were kind of magic shows and said, well, this is very fascinating stuff, Dr. Franklin, but what possible use could electricity ever have? And uh, Franklin answered, of what use is a baby? Well, this is some baby. Though we were just sort of talking about the space economy, obviously the vision here is bigger. The vision here is the multi-planetary uh, uh, permanent establishment on the moon, Mars. When are we going to see that happen? Well, uh, I think um, we will probably see the first human landings on Mars by the end of this decade. Um, I think it's likely to be a public-private partnership. You know, uh, Musk always projects he's going to do things sooner than he gets them done, but he eventually gets them done. And I think starships are going to be flying to orbit by 2024. Somebody's going to be elected president in 2024. And they see 100 tons being delivered to orbit all the time by these reusable spaceships. And this guy wants to go to Mars. Can this really be done? Yeah, there's some other stuff that's needed besides the starships. We need surface systems and all sorts of other stuff. We could develop that. We could get together with him. And if we do that, we can make this happen. Could it be done by the end of my second term? Absolutely. Okay, is it going to cost a trillion dollars? No, we could probably do it within NASA's existing budget because he's got the transportation system. Well, then why aren't we doing this? So I, I think that's how it's going to come about. And I, I would say something. There's, there, there's another side to this. There's, there's the positive side, and there's also avoiding a tremendous negative. Because, you know, people talk about the grand threats, the existential threat that humanity faces today. And some people, as very fashionable, say it's global warming. Okay. And I believe global warming is real, by the way, but one degree in 150 years is not an existential threat. It's an event. Um, the, 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 some people say it's resource exhaustion. I do not think that it's real. Resources are created by technologies. And we have more technology, we get more resources. But there's another threat that is quite real. Uh, and that is bad ideas. It, it's not global warming or resource exhaustion that caused the catastrophes of the 20th century. It was bad ideas and one bad idea in particular in a variety of forms, which is there isn't enough for everyone, okay? There isn't enough for everyone. So we need to fight over what is here, okay? Now this is a fiction. The world was not overpopulated in 1914 or 1939. It's not overpopulated now, okay? And it's true that we don't have to go into space to create nuclear power so that we don't need Middle Eastern oil. We could do that. But the problem is, it's not the shortage of the resource itself, but this fundamental idea that the world is zero sum. And this is, is, is the fundamental driving force for war, which is the existential threat to humanity today. And if people can see that by working together, by using our creative powers, we can take planets that are now wastelands and turn them into inhabited worlds. They, they'd understand, they, you know, if you create planets, what's the point of fighting over provinces? How helpful would it be in, in making this vision reality for us to figure out nuclear fusion? There's been a lot of news, probably been more news on fusion in the past 18 months than maybe the past, you know, 18 years or more. Yeah, sure. And uh, but but by the way, you should know that this entrepreneurial space revolution is what has set off this entrepreneurial fusion revolution. OK, people looked at the success of SpaceX and they said, huh, maybe the problem with fusion is the same as the problem with achieving space launch. Maybe the fundamental problem isn't technical. Maybe it's institutional. 
okay, that instead of something being done by large government bureaucracies, this needs to be done by uh, teams of entrepreneurs. And, you know, I actually worked in the fusion program a bit in the 80s. I was at Los Alamos. And I can remember one group lunch we had where the team leader, men named Krukowski, actually said, you know, when fusion power is finally developed, it's not going to be at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore. It's going to be a couple of crackpots working in a garage. And everybody laughed because fusion machines are big and expensive and beyond the realm of garage inventors. But if not crackpots in a garage, then a startup in a warehouse, yes. And so now you have entrepreneurial fusion companies being funded $500 million, $800 million, billion dollars. They're actually being funded at a higher level than the official government fusion programs, and they are moving much faster. And you know these people are not talking about you know, taking 50 years to build a machine like ITER before you turn it on. They're talking about taking three years to build a machine and five years to get real results because that's what investors are looking for. They're not looking for a 50-year research program. And um, so this is going to happen. Now, I also think, however, that um, if fusion is not developed on Earth, or even if it is, it will be taken much further by, for example, uh, Martian civilization. Because see, Mars doesn't have fossil fuels and they don't have waterfalls and solar energy is pretty weak. Uh, and nuclear power certainly could be used on Mars, but it takes a big industrial base to do all the isotope separation and mining and all this stuff. But deuterium, which is the fuel for fusion reactors, is five times as common as it is on, on Mars as it is on Earth. So the Martians will have a tremendous incentive to develop fusion power. You know, the British developed the steam engine, but it was Americans who developed the steam boat because the only highways in early American were rivers and sailboats have limited utility on rivers because of the strong current. So we needed steamboats. So Robert Fulton, okay. And then the steamboats of the Mississippi. I mean, we developed the steamboat because our society needed it. And the, and then this greatly advanced steam technology, it, it made it more compact and portable and efficient and uh, set the stage for a lot of other things, including, say, railroads. Well, nuclear power, okay, it's been a mixed bag. It's, it's sometimes competitive uh, for power stations, um, but can also be replaced with fossil fuels. But the one place where you can't beat nuclear power is on a submarine. So just as the first efficient steam engines were on steamboats, Nuclear power came about because, uh, well, it actually did come about because of its need for submarine propulsion, and it remains unchallenged there today. Um, Now, fusion is uh, a way to generate electricity. It's also an incredible possible source of space propulsion. With a fusion rocket, you can get exhaust velocities of up to uh, 8% the speed of light. And a rocket properly designed can get up to about twice its exhaust velocity. You're talking about uh, the introductory capability for interstellar travel. That's where this thing is going. Um, So yeah, the Martians will have a a much stronger imperative than anyone on earth has for fusion power and both for industrial use for power generation, but also to enable travel further out. We've talked a lot about the private sector, about entrepreneurs. What would you want government to do over the next decade? again, to turn sort of this vision into reality? Well, first of all, the the most important thing the government can do to help the entrepreneurial space revolution is be a smart customer, okay? A free market 
requires freedom to sell and freedom to buy. In other words, right now, for example, uh, you have uh, the various politicians attempting to compel the government to use uh, the, the SLS, a, a, a vastly more expensive space launch vehicle than Starship promises to be, or even the Falcons are already. Uh, um, and so if, if, if the government is not free to buy the best deal, that disincentivizes the provision of the best deal. If the government is a smart shopper, if it rewards merit, then merit will be promoted. Uh, now, once again, if you talk about NASA between purpose-driven and vendor-driven programs, the science directorate is largely purpose-driven. So for instance, this test space telescope, which is a telescope in interplanetary space for finding extrasolar planets, was launched on a Falcon 9, cost them $65 million. Now, they could have launched it on a 300 million delta instead, but since the science directed wanted to save its money to devote to science instead of launch costs, okay, they bought the cheapest vehicle, okay? But the human spaceflight program, its imperatives are all distorted by the need to supply funds to this district, this state, this manufacturer, and so forth. And so the, 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 the funds of the human spaceflight program are not being used effectively. I mean, they are incidentally, but the, 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 most of them are not being used effectively to promote progress in space technology because they're being politically directed instead of purpose directed. So really all, all the government needs to do is spend the taxpayers money efficiently and they will promote the space launch revolution. Where does your interest in space come from? Uh, well, it goes a long way back. Um, if I wanted to cite a particular event in my life, I, I would have to say Sputnik. Um, I'm, I was actually five when Sputnik flew. And I was an early reader, I was reading science fiction. And while the adult world may have been terrified of Sputnik, you know, it meant the Russians could hit us, to me, it was exhilarating. It meant that all these stories I, I was reading about space travel were gonna be true, okay? So, I mean, you probably, you know, read Homer Hickam's account of his life. He was a teenager when Sputnik flew, and how that inspired him. Well, I was five, but he inspired me too. And so, and, and my parents, saw it and they promoted my interest. My father got me a telescope and I did drawings of the moon through the eyepiece and all this. And, and, and I started launching rockets as well. And, um, and during the sixties, I mean, we were moving ahead like you wouldn't believe, you know, every month or two, there'd be something new in space, whether by the Russians or by us, you know, two people in space, space walks, space rendezvous, orbiting the moon, space probes to Mars. Uh, and then of course the moon landing itself. You know, and I, I was on board, okay? Um, you're gonna my, be on the moon by 1970, Mars by 1980, Saturn by 1990, Alpha Centauri by the year 2000, and we were moving out, man. Now, of course, the only part of that program that actually was realized was the moon by 1970, in fact, made it by 1969. Uh, but then Nixon shut the show down. Uh, and for a while, you know, I, by then I was in college, um, you know, I, I accepted that as a reality and I took my science education and went, became a secondary school teacher uh, in science. Um, but at a certain point, you know, I'm living in uh, Northern Manhattan, teaching in Brooklyn and commuting on the A train each way an hour and 15 minutes and reading novels by Herman Melville about sailing the South Seas. 
and started saying, what am I doing here? Okay. You know, this isn't what I signed up for. And so, uh, you know, by then I had heard about this thing called graduate school and I decided to go back to graduate school and initially in uh, nuclear fusion. Um, and this was in the eighties. Um, but even while that was happening, the fusion program was being uh, uh, slowed down by budget cuts and then by this international collaboration, which took away the dynamic of, of international competition, which had driven it before. Um, but I started hearing about the Mars Underground, which is a group of people about my own age who were saying, look, we got to get the space program back on track. We should have been on Mars by now. This And I started going to their conferences and, and I, I was it. And then I, uh, by then I was an engineer and I got myself hired at Martin Marietta, which is now Lockheed Martin, to do preliminary design of interplanetary missions. And well, here I am. And by the way, if people want to know more about what I've, I've got to say, I got a couple of books. One is called uh, The Case for Mars. And you'll notice it's got an endorsement by Elon Musk on the cover. And the other is called The Case for Space, which deals more with the entrepreneurial space revolution. Robert, that was fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me here. 